0: We are in week two of April 2023. That means we're already thinking ahead toward tulips here in the capital region. But a former president of the United States was charged with almost three dozen felony counts. The state budget is late. And there was a devastating fire in Albany again. So there's lots we have to go over this week before we can smell those spring flowers. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top
1: headlines. Stefanik, of course, had a very different attitude towards due process when the uh, allegations were made against Democrats.
0: We'll break down the latest on the aftermath of the massive fire that destroyed the Kenwood Academy and former Doan Stewart School. The city of Albany says someone started the fire, but was it an accident or was it arson?
2: Part of the problem is that fire was so destructive and burned so hot that it destroyed any real evidence fire investigators might have been able to use.
0: And is there a time capsule inside the Albany City Hall statue of Philip Schuyler? The statue's coming down, so we soon may find out. So it is possible we won't know until the statue's removed. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe.
0: Welcome to the Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's now discuss what appeared in the Times Union and TimesUnion.com this week. All right, here we are. Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler is with us. We are going to talk about the headlines this week. We will start with the uh, appearance in court of former President Donald Trump. That was a rather large story this week. Um, and let's talk about, you know, New York lawmaker reaction to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much it was pretty much what one would expect with the former president's partisans and supporters berating Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and saying that this was nothing more than a political persecution as opposed to a legal prosecution. And, uh, you know, one of the strongest among those voices, of course, was North Country lawmaker Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who is now number three in the House and has already endorsed Trump for 2024 and put out a hail of social media posts leading up to and in the wake of the former president's arraignment saying that, you know, she stands with Donald Trump. This is nothing more than a weaponized you know, Soros-backed district attorney, which has been the kind of the level of rhetoric that we've, that we've seen from some. But Chris Churchill, who wrote about this, noted that Stefanik, of course, had a very different attitude towards due process when the uh, allegations were made against Democrats. You know, she is... She is famous for for saying that, you know, uh, Andrew Cuomo needed to be arrested immediately upon the release of the Attorney General's August 2021 report into his alleged sexual misconduct. She keeps referring to the Biden crime family, despite the fact that, of course, nobody in the family has ever been charged with any crime. And there you go. But Chris also goes on to, to write about his own concerns that The case brought by Alvin Bragg, and once again, as I'm sure the world entire knows by now, this involves the hush money payments that were paid to Stormy Daniels in an allegedly criminally fraudulent fashion back in 2016, really in the heat of the final months and even weeks of the presidential election. That's going to be a a long shot of a case and based at least upon the charging documents that have been presented so far. Misdemeanors uh, in the the false records uh, matter, those appear to be a lock, without a doubt. But raising them to the level of felony charges is going to involve a slightly riskier legal strategy by the district attorney's office. And, and that poses perils, but even for people who don't like Donald Trump a lot, and believe it or not, just there are a lot of them out there um, and could embolden uh, Trump supporters. So we we shall see, but it's definitely all coming back to New York for Donald Trump.
0: Queens own, yes, a <laughs> lot, of, lot of guys from Queens that we've discussed on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But we will surely be watching that as the rest of the nation will. All right, let's uh, bring it back here to Albany, where you know, really, unfortunately, and, and horrifically. There have been a lot of fires lately, and the latest one uh, happened on Wednesday on Grand Street. Can you tell us the latest there?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're talking two weeks after the fire at the Kenwood property in the south of Albany. But on early Wednesday morning, just around 2 a.m., a fire on Grand Street, one of Albany's most uh, historic streets right downtown, kind of close by the foot of Madison Avenue, took out... Four did did significant damage to four buildings, kicking a lot of people out of their homes. It took four hours to bring the flames under control, and it is clear that uh, you know two sanitation workers, uh, Kenneth Carter and Crone Brown, who were working a ship that morning, heroically managed to to spread the word and to get people out it is quite possible that there could have been fatalities if not for these two city workers fast action and there is uh there's a facebook live video that uh, that kind of shows them rushing around trying to make sure that everybody everybody was out and everybody was safe so a terrible story especially for downtown albany which is as noted has Seeing too many properties either burn or just or just crumble th- to the ground through structural deficiency and inattention, but it could have been much, much worse, so we can we can take that good news away from it that that nobody was seriously hurt
0: indeed, and that Facebook Live is quite a powerful watch we're going to stay in Albany now. The Albany Public Library is uh being criticized for offering an internship to black librarians. Tell us what's going on there.
1: Yeah, this was a a cease and desist letter that came from a group called the Legal Insurrection Foundation, which is a nonprofit based out of Rhode Island that has filed similar complaints, threatening litigation, objecting to what is described as racially preferential practices at academic institutions, colleges, and universities. But in this case, they are taking issue with the TUI Equity Foundation Fellowship, which is entering its third summer, and it pays for two interns who must be, and I'm quoting here from the application materials, recent black graduates of library school programs. The Legal Insurrection Foundation takes issue with that, saying it is racially exclusionary, only open to the black students and black recent graduates. The library says it is looking for its options here, that they are examining whether or not there is a way for for this to thread the needle. There are, of course, allowances made for programs that do work to achieve the goals of building diversity within uh, institutions that have long been disproportionately, vastly disproportionately white only, uh, without a doubt. We shall see if uh, if it actually passes muster or if the library will have to will have to open up this internship um, more broadly to others. You know, the the library makes a good point that library sciences, like so many other fields for a long time, has been dominated by white folks. And that is a problem that the Tui Fellowship is meant to address.
0: All right. Well, we'll be watching that. Let's move on now over to Western Massachusetts, where we had a recent update on what's going on with the Williamstown Theater Festival. It's going to be different this year.
1: Yeah, vastly different. Um, as Steve Barnes noted in a, a really comprehensive report, uh, the theater is is really not going to be uh, nearly as robust this year. There are going to be no staged productions. Instead, there are going to be a handful of staged readings where both the cast members' scripts in hand and the audiences will all be up on stage. Now, this is the result of kind of a double whammy, one that lots of arts organizations have have faced, and that's the aftermath of the pandemic. The festival was even more shut down in 2020, of course, But also more uniquely, um, controversy within the festival over the treatment of employees, especially stagehands, accusations of exploitation, dangerous conditions, you know, low wages, all because of the sort of storied reputation of Williamstown that it not only builds uh, Broadway-bound or off-Broadway-bound productions, but also is a fantastic thing to have on your resume because of the starry casts that flock to do serious theater in the beautiful environs of, of Williamstown, Massachusetts. Those criticisms prompted what the festival says has been kind of uh, deep internal thoughts and investigations and what have you. And that essentially the the festival needs to hit the pause button, as it were, if if you want to see this summer's very skeletal offerings as a kind of pause button, so they can kind of get their act in order. There you go. I think the question that you know Steve and I have discussed is number one: what's this going to mean for for Williamstown? I mean, the festival is a big part of its summer economy of that part of the Berkshires. And also, what's going to happen next year? How do you bounce back from this? Do you go back to having a full complement of of stage productions? Jess, I'm sure you've been over there to see a show. It is a gorgeous place to see theater. And uh, it's a real shame that it's not going to be completely dark, but definitely curtailed for the summer of 2023 at the very least.
0: Absolutely. One of uh, our region's kind of hallmark summer events there. All right. One final thing I want to touch on, and I just want to give you the opportunity, I guess, to brag here, because the Times Union took home a significant number of awards in this year's New York Press Association awards. Tell us, what did we win?
1: Jess, as we like to say down south, it's not bragging if it's true. But uh, (laughs) no, no. uh, In all seriousness, yes, the New York Press Association, over the course of its two-day meeting, uh, last weekend, uh, rolled out all of their awards and the times union was named newspaper of the year. And that's based on sort of the points that we racked up in the various categories. We were tied for that honor with the Highlands current, which is a a weekly publication out of cold spring also won the Stuart C. Dornan award for editorial excellence. Once again, because of that point count which, according to the judges, was twenty five points ahead of the the next nearest competition. Um, wow. But in terms of the of the individual awards, I'm really pleased at the recognition of our series on restraint and seclusion in educational institutions that our data investigation team did, while it was a work of many hands. um Emily Munson, Matt Rochelow, and Ying Zhao won the top Freedom of Information Prize, as well as the award for best uh, investigative and in-depth reporting. We could go on for a long time about the first place honors. Rob Gavin won for his coverage of crime. Chris Bragg, who has recently left us for the Buffalo News, he won for uh, his coverage of elections and politics. He, of course, did all the great stories on Governor Hochul and digital gadgets um, last year. Jeff Boyer won for editorial cartooning. Shayla Cologne's series on Pearl Street, which was a very big project from just about a year ago, was honored for a distinguished coverage of diversity. And Jess, last but not least, uh, you won for your work on the podcast that we are recording right now. So, <laughs> congratulations! There you go.
0: Thank you, indeed. That was a big honor, and I would like to point out that many, if not almost all, of the folks that you just mentioned. Um, that won awards. We have talked about those award-winning stories on this very podcast. So if you are interested, go back and check out those previous episodes. All right, Casey, we will check back in with you in two weeks because next week we're taking a little break, but we will check back in with you then and uh, have a great week.
1: Happy Easter. Happy Passover.
0: As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or on any of our social channels. Now, we mentioned the Kenwood Academy fire briefly a few minutes ago, but let's go back to it now. A massive blaze that started in the evening of March 23rd left the site largely in ruins. Two weeks later, the city of Albany has offered a $10,000 reward to anyone who could provide information on how the fire started. City officials say they believe someone started it, but they don't know if it was intentional or on purpose. Times Union Albany City reporter Steve Hughes has been following the story, and I connected with him to go over the latest. About a week ago, a week and a half ago, I should say, we were kind of all watching in horror as uh, this fire at the Kenwood site unfolded in real time. We had lots of video coming in, um, just this kind of horrific blaze at this longstanding kind of Albany institution. has a lot of historical value. Um, it's completely destroyed now. Um, since then, we you've been investigating, you know, what happened. And it's not really immediately clear what happened, but now... City officials are saying someone started it? What's what's going on?
2: Yes. So the latest is a Sunday evening, uh, city officials put out a statement offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to them to understand what started this fire. Part of the problem is that fire was so destructive and burned so hot that it destroyed any real evidence fire investigators might have been able to use. So they're asking anyone with any information to come forward to help them try and figure out what happened.
0: They're saying that they think based on, you know, what little evidence they could collect that that it was started by a person.
2: What they're saying at this point is they can't determine whether it was accidental or intentional, whether, you know, there may have been a, a squatter there who started some type of fire to stay warm or if there was any more sinister motive leading to its destruction.
0: So tell me about the building though. Let's go kind of back a little bit and talk about the building itself.
2: To understand what the former kenwood academy was you have to go all the way back to the 1850s when this religious order came to the city and they opened a school for girls it was uh, first down on pearl street and then they moved this school to a sprawling home on the hillside that was formerly the home of one of albany's mayors he was a wealthy uh, businessman uh, after he died, his family decided to unload the house, and this religious order bought it and had this very successful girls' school there. And in 1975, it merged with another school, an Episcopalian school, and became known as the Don Stewart School. So you have well over 150 years of Albany history in this building. Unfortunately, in 2009, the Don Stewart school's efforts to purchase it from the religious order fell through. The religious order wanted more money than the school was willing to give. And so the school moved across the river to Rensselaer and the building became vacant. That's where the real problems began because anyone who knows anything about a, a building of any kind, much less a his- historical one, says the worst <laughs> thing you can do is leave a building empty for a period of time.
0: It was left empty for, what, more than a decade now? 15 years, something like that?
2: You know, there were repeated efforts over the years to get somebody to go in there and, and redevelop it into some sort of productive use. And those efforts just never came to fruition.
0: What else do they know about this fire? I mean, I know you said it was burned hot and there's very, you know, little evidence left over, but what else are they saying?
2: They've said very little. I've um, reached out to the fire chief a few times about some tips and leads that I've gotten. Um, nothing solid, but I think part of the reason they think this fire was, had to be set by someone is there was no electricity. There was no gas to the building. It had been shut off for years. So it wasn't like, you know, a scrapper went in and accidentally sparked a fire by hitting a wire. It just didn't happen. And the other problem is it burned so fast and so hot. The day after the fire, the fire chief said that within minutes of firefighters getting on the scene, the steeple had collapsed. It was just completely out of control by the time firefighters got there. And uh, they took up what they call a defensive position, which is almost an immediate acknowledgement is this building is lost. Our job is to prevent this fire from spreading someplace else and damaging more buildings.
0: And they were able successfully to do that eventually, right?
2: Yes. So the main structure, which is a incredible loss for the city's history, was destroyed. But some of the add-ons over the years and other buildings on the property were spared some of the worst damage. Uh, I believe city officials this week were waiting on an engineering report to tell them whether some of the additional buildings on the site, what the extent of the damage is, um, and what can be done with them. And that's really the question going forward is, what do we do with this site?
0: Now, have there been other incidents, you know, in recent history?
2: I'm you sure can... there, there have been historic buildings lost to fires over the year. But the larger issue the city has struggled with is ensuring that historic buildings do not fall into this pattern of neglect that'll lead to their eventual demolition, either by fire or just simply the buildings crumble to the point where they are no longer safe and they have to be torn down. And that has been the big issue over the year is these emergency demolitions where pieces of the city's history are simply torn down because no one has properly cared for them over the years. There have been absentee landlords. The city has not done upkeep on certain buildings it is owned. And it really frustrates historians and preservationists because they say, we need to have a plan for each building. We need to get these buildings into the hands of responsible owners who have the finances and the know-how to redevelop them into some sort of successful use. And to be fair, there have been successful instances of that. Um, if you look at the Kenmore Building downtown, if you look at the Cap Rep Theater, there are you know, very good uses for some of these old buildings, but other ones in the city are still crumbling and probably will be torn down.
0: Do you know of any of them that are kind of being watched at the moment for that?
2: I spoke with some historian and preservationists last week, and several of them, without prompting, the two buildings they, they pointed to were... Uh, some of the churches of the city that are in private hand. St. John's down on Green Street and there's Holy Innocence in Arbor Hill. They are both uh, beautiful former churches and they are worried that at this point, there's simply no saving them. You, know, you can see St. John's, if you're driving north on 787, you could just see that the roof is basically gone. Um, mm. There's just huge gaping holes in it. And there are other ones. Um, if you look at the for a bathhouse down in the South End. That mm-hmm. one is another one that has being eyed for some sort of reuse in the future, but it's unclear what that would be.
0: Not a bathhouse. <laughs>
2: no. <laughs> we That's we have moved thing. past that era of Albany.
0: <laughs> so who tell me who owns the Kenwood site and why is it complicated?
2: That is a good question. So with the, in two thousand. Seventeen. the building was sold to a New York City real estate developer named Jacob Friedman. He, uh, at one point, was part of a group that once owned the Central Warehouse.
0: That's a whole other story.
2: <laughs> so so he buys the building in 2017 through an LLC for $3 million. Mm-hmm. The same day that he buys it, he sells it to another LLC he owns for $18 million. And wow. he comes out and he says... He has this grand vision of how he's going to completely redevelop the site. It's going to be apartments, amphitheater, condos. It would be a huge development project in the city. And if you remember back in 2017, even today, the city was desperate for new housing. So city officials were very intrigued by this. And then in 2019, one of his lenders forecloses on him. There are multiple mechanics liens, tax liens, and work on the site just stops. This happens after he had removed every door and every window in this building, leaving it open to the elements, and he just walked away from the site. Mm, The pandemic obviously slowed down the court case, but he has been fighting tooth and nail to keep this building. I've never been able to get him on the phone to explain why. In Late last year, a company called Guild Investment Group assumed the debt of the property, basically taking over the mortgage and in january excuse me in february they were able to get a federal bankruptcy judge to allow them to move forward with the foreclosure what they decided to do then was auction off the property and they had been in contact with city and county officials saying you know what are the zoning uses for this land what are the back taxes work to? they clearly had some intention with moving forward with something on the property on march 21st they held an auction and they were the only bidders they bought the site for $100,000, and then two days later, it burned to the ground.
0: That is an incredible coincidence, if it's a co- indeed a coincidence.
2: It is a very interesting turn of events. And so the ownership picture is complicated because the sale is not closed. But the property this group thought they were buying is clearly not the property that they were interested in. The, the main structure is gone. Uh, there's remediation that would need to be done. There's questions about the value of it. The former owner is still appealing this ruling, trying to hold on to the property. The interesting twist is on March 28th, 2022, when he declared bankruptcy, he also took out a $2 million insurance policy on the site. Hmm. It was to expire one year later. The problem is I don't know if that is routine in bankruptcy or not. I simply am not an expert, so maybe you do. But if you can't pay your bills and you can somehow pay your insurance policy premiums, Mm-hmm. I have questions.
0: But we are not making any assumptions about that. However, what did you say? It was March 28, 2020.
2: March 28th. Yeah, the insurance policy had a one-year expiration date of March 28, 2023.
0: And the fire was March...
2: The fire was March 23rd.
0: So suspiciously close to the one-year expiration date, I'm guessing.
2: And two days after, it was auctioned off to the group that assumed the loan on the property.
0: Wow. I mean, so this all could be an incredible coincidence, or there could be something deeper there, which is what you are looking into now, right?
2: Yes. And and that's part of the reason that I think city officials are very, very interested in having someone come forward with some information on what happened here, because I, I'm quite sure that these investors also have questions as well.
0: Well, this is shaping up to be giving the central warehouse saga a run for its money.
2: <laughs> you know, I will I will simply point out that August 2017 was a very unusual month because that was the date that Evan Blum bought the Central Warehouse and that Jacob Friedman bought the former Kenwood Academy. So I don't know what it was in the universe that aligned, but it was a bad month for Albany real estate to redevelopment.
0: After the break, there might be a time capsule from 1925 inside the Albany City Hall statue of Philip Schuyler, That's slated to come down soon, and we'll get to the bottom of this mystery. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the lost boy. I'm Jessica Marshall, and I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade.
3: Available now wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. In the spring of 2020, Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan ordered the statue of Philip Schuyler that stands outside City Hall to be taken down. Schuyler was one of the most wealthy and prominent Albany citizens in the mid-1700s. He was a revolutionary war hero and a senator and Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law, but he also owned enslaved people. Here's the mayor speaking about the need to take the statue down three years ago during a Times Union panel discussion. And keep in mind, this was not long after George Floyd was murdered. There is a statue that causes pain for people who come to work in City Hall every
3: day. You have to walk past that statue to get a marriage license. You have to walk past that statue to get justice. We have a courthouse in City Hall. And I am uh, feel very passionately that um, we have to be responsive to that pain in our community. And that doesn't mean that you dismiss it and that you you know, uh, uh, that, you, that you pretend that it didn't happen. Um, this isn't about sweeping it under the rug, but it is about finding a way to have a really important conversation that goes far beyond just this statue.
0: Three years later, the statue is still standing. But the city says the statue's removal is imminent, though there's no announcement of a date or a time. They say it will go into storage. The renewed push to have the statue removed was sparked in large part by a group of Albany high school students through the Young Abolitionist Leadership Group at the Albany-based Underground Railroad Education Center. They published a report last year called What to Do with Bill? that calls for a commission to determine what ultimately happens to the statue. They argue that Schuyler was able to accomplish what he did because, quote, he stood on the shoulders of those who were enslaved to him. So that's the latest with the statue's destiny. But Times Union reporter Rose Schneider has been looking into another aspect of this story. The fact that there may be a time capsule within the plinth planted in 1925 when the statue went up. It's all a bit mysterious. So I connected with Rose to find out more. So you learned recently that there is potentially a time capsule in the statue, in the base of the statue perhaps, that would be inevitably unearthed if and when the statue comes down, right? I first did the story, I think it
3: was um, at or around St. Patrick's Day, about... The mayor's office is announcing that the statue would come down in the coming weeks. And I got an email from a reader saying they had heard there was a time capsule. So you did check it out. And what did you find? I did a search and the initial search just gave me the July 2020 newsletter from the Saratoga chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution saying that they had uncovered on like ancestry.com a program that listed the contents of a time capsule that said it was encased in bronze within the statue i reached out to some like you know museums and historical groups and they didn't really have you know much to say on it they you know they said oh if that's true that'd be really interesting and the only other clue i had was that when i messaged the uh, mayor's office, uh, her chief of staff got back and said, yeah, we've heard about this. So it is possible. We won't know until the statue's removed. Shortly after that, I got a hold of the city of Albany historian who said, yes, I've seen these documents and they should indicate that there is one inside. I reached out to the Albany library and this weekend was able to go down and look at like one of the copies of it in its original form. And that's how I initially confirmed it was This listing in the program that said contents of bronze chest encased in monument. So I'm dying to know what is inside the time capsule. It includes 10 volumes of a series called the Munsell's Annals of Albany, which are basically, I believe, like going over all these lengthy history and directories of the city, an atlas, maps, photographs, memorabilia, coins, I think currency that sort of thing interesting and yeah and then the other two things that were also helpful were there were two times union articles and one of them was from 1925 when the statue was unveiled and they were going crazy about this unveiling they had four front page stories devoted to this they had discussions of the statue and its sculptor they had one just talking about the person who commissioned this. And they had, you know, a review who was going to be part of this unveiling ceremony. Big, big news. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, one of the things that they mentioned, the person who commissioned it, uh, George Holly. like, you know, they talk about how he was like, you know, part of the yachting club. You know, it was very oh. 1925 in Albany. You know, the reason that the statue even exists is because... He commissioned it in memoriam of his deceased wife, Theodora Hawley. And I included an observation from the group of students who had recently um, submitted an essay that the city of Albany kind of used as their reasoning for wanting to take the statue down. Mm -hmm. Now, and in talking about the historical significance, they mentioned that they were kind of confused why this statue, which was supposed to be like this pinnacle of like sort of masculinity and a war hero and Albany's most famous native son, I think it was one of the quotes about him, um, was being used to serve in memoriam of this man's deceased wife, who in the program, you know, they talk about that they both loved the city of Albany, they were philanthropists, you know, that she loved flowers and their conservatories. And then they go on to talk about George Hawley being, you know, a scholar of the, you know, American revolution and all that. I think looking at how they just talked about Schuyler as a politician and a war general and this one of their more famous figures out of Albany I definitely think they probably didn't imagine that less than 100 years later there would be kind of this reckoning for him because he was a slave owner. I'm sure it didn't even occur to them in the slightest. Yeah you know this guy owned human beings, uh, over a dozen of them between his two estates. And, you know, he is outside of city, you know, Albany City Hall.
0: So there's been no clarity on when this statue is going to come down. I mean, the city is adamant that it is coming down, but there's no clarity as to when and when it does happen, whether or not they will make this time capsule kind of publicize the time capsule show it to show it to the media like what are you hearing about about that there has been no update
3: since on this i did swing by on saturday by city hall after i looked at the records just to be 100% sure it's still standing but um
0: <laughs> yeah they have said it was going to be in the coming weeks and it's been the coming weeks the, the issues are that it's expensive right that it it's expensive to take the statue down and they're not sure what's going to happen to it although they're Guessing that it'll go into storage. I believe the
3: initial kind of hesitation was, "Where is the stat was supposed to be? Where is the statue going to go?" But then last month when they announced it, they said, "We'll figure it out." But for now, it's going in storage,
0: mm-hmm.
3: which is you know a little different. When they initially were like, "Well, it's going to go somewhere, but we can't just like throw it in a closet."
0: Too big. To go into a closet. <laughs> That's it's true. A... It's nine feet tall. Yeah, it's much taller than it looks from you know where you're holding it on the ground. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of a, at least it intrigues me as a story, like, you know, maybe not what you'd usually be working on, you know, when you're just kind of in for, a, you know, the dailies, but this, something about the story must have intrigued you, right? And we kind of went on a, like, a little mini adventure to, to confirm this. I mean,
3: tell me about that. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, this all started with, it all started with an email from a reader saying, interesting, have you heard about this? basically at first every single you know comment that i could get from someone was sure it might exist but you know we don't know but yeah it was just like this series of coincidences too of like you know someone happened to have you know a back channel to these historic archives and was able to pull up the you know the documents confirming yes this does exist for all i knew this was you know it was going to be a wild goose chase so I think that was definitely part of what was intriguing was just like, you know, does this actually exist or not? I
0: I don't know. It's it's not a sure thing yet. All right. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Instagram. Or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of The Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from The Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Steve Hughes, and Rose Schneider for their contributions to this episode.